scripture reading comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 3. Would you please stand in honor of God's word? Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to him, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their head was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any other god other than their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. The word of the Lord. We're starting a new sermon series today, uh, which is called Advent Theophanies, Glimpses of Jesus in the Old Testament. 
We're starting Advent early this year. Now, it's not really that we observe Advent particularly. Right? We're not, we don't really follow the church calendar with any kind of exactitude. But uh, one of the challenges of Christmas is that it's kind of like narcissism and greed and materialism all got together and had an illicit relationship and gave birth to Christmas, to American Christmas. Now, some of you who, there's some of you who love Christmas, right? And you are wounded by that illustration or analogy. I get it. I'm not trying to offend you. But if you're in any kind of social work or pastoral work or uh, any police counseling, anything of that nature, you know that, that American Christmas is a bad scene. Uh, family issues erupt. People come apart. Uh, people go into massive debt buying gifts for people that they never see and spend the rest of the year trying to pay off that debt so they can do it again. There's lots of anxiety. There's lots of stress. Uh, it's really something when you take a step back and say, oh, this is the time in which we're supposed to be celebrating and remembering what it means that God became incarnate, that he came into this world and took on human flesh. And then you look at most of the celebration of Christmas that happens culturally, you would have a hard time putting the two together, right? Explaining what one has to do or actually how one informs the other. And so the reason that each year we spend a little bit of time on Advent is to, is to try to reclaim a little bit of that territory, right? To come back and to say, okay, what does it really mean to dwell upon the fact that the king has come and that the king is coming again? And how does that inform us during the season of the year? And so we're trying to push back against some of that materialism, some of that narcissism, some of that greed. And hopefully, as a result, you'll have a more spirit-filled uh, Christmas in that sense. So uh, before we begin, it might be helpful. Some of you are probably uh, not familiar with the word Advent, and so you're not exactly sure what I'm talking about. Well, in the church calendar, Advent refers to the, uh, particularly to the four Sundays prior to Christmas Day. Right? So whatever, whatever day Christmas falls on on a given year, you back up four Sundays and you have the four Sundays of Advent. And you might think, well, we're not quite there yet, are we? And you are right. But we have too many sermons in the sermon series to start four weeks out. So we're starting right now uh, so that we can fit them all in. And uh, the reason there are so many is we're looking at theophanies in the Old Testament. Now, the word theophany refers to a uh, unique appearance of God in which uh, something really out of the ordinary seems to be happening in the Old Testament to the degree that we tend to take a step back and say, boy, that looks an awful lot like what's coming in Jesus. Right? So a theophany is where theologians wonder, is this a, what they call a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus? In other words, Jesus showing up in some way before right, he shows up as Jesus and heads to the cross. So We'll consider different passages like the three visitors to Abraham, uh, the visitor who wrestles with Jacob, and of course today the fourth man in the fiery furnace. And uh, what I want you to see today, or what, uh, what I hope you're encouraged about, um, or by, is that the result of faith is that no matter what furnace you find yourself in, right, you, you will find Jesus there with you. Right? That's the point. Of, of today's message of the passage, but it's important that we wrestle with idolatry as we get to that final conclusion. So what we're going to do, uh, we're going to consider idolatry and then resisting idolatry and then uh, what true the true God offers in contrast to that. So let's do a little idolatry 101, which I love. It's at the heart of 
of uh, so many, th- most things. So you've got a golden image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up here, right? Uh, we started a little bit in the middle of uh, Daniel 3, so we're missing some of the starting points. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. Judah has been placed in Babylonian captivity. Right? They're living as prisoners under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to build an enormous statue. It's about 30 feet high. It's about 9 feet across. And he calls everyone in the kingdom with any kind of political clout to worship the statue. Right? When, you, when you hear the music kick up, you take a knee and you bow before the statue. And this is how I'm going to, Nebuchadnezzar is going to exert his power and he's, how he's going to bring the people together. Uh, and interestingly, you have some real, um, uh, the author is intentionally borrowing language to, um, to help you remember that this is a lot like the Tower of Babel. So you're on the fields, uh, you're on the plains of Babylon, right, same place. You have all of the nations gathered and you have a, something uh, that's built to uh, human ingenuity, a human achievement, human power, and the people are, are called to then uh, to worship that. And so um, the author is trying to indicate to us that this is as silly or as foolish as that endeavor under the Tower of Babel. It is another uh, venture into idolatry. So let's ask for a minute, what does the image actually do? Let's think about Nebuchadnezzar before we, add, we think about it more broadly in a general sense. Why would Nebuchadnezzar bother to build a statue? Now, we don't know if the statue's of him or if it's of one of his gods. Much more likely that it's one of his gods for two reasons. Uh, later on in the passage, he's going to make it a discussion about gods. And we're really, we're really kind of before you see uh, national emperor's leaders do a lot of statues unto themselves, like in their own likeness. By the time you get to Greco-Roman times, you see that all over the place. But this far back, more often than not, when you see a statue, it's, it's toward the chosen God that the person worships. So this is set up, and what's going on for Nebuchadnezzar? Now think, you're a God in an ancient land, and you're over this people, and you set up an idol and ask everyone to worship it. What is that accomplishing? I mean, you haven't done this willy-nilly, right? A lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of energy. It's going to do a number of things in terms of your power and what's going on. Number one, it's going to increase your power. In other words, you are now um, promoting an image to the people that testifies why you have authority. I am the king that this God favors, and how could he not favor me after I have built this statue to him? So you better see his power flowing through me. Number two, a statue like that reaffirms commitment. Now, everyone, even in the ancient world, you've got pantheons of gods, right? Uh, in Babylonia, particularly. And so you're choosing which god am I going to worship? And anytime, friends, every single human being on the face of the earth is asking themselves, have I chosen the right thing to worship? Right? That's a question that's always occurring, uh, even for us, right? As we wrestle in following Jesus. But certainly here, and by setting up a statue and bringing everyone to worship that thing, you get to say, I've kind of consolidated things here, and I'm reaffirmed in my own commitment to this God because this power is unifying my kingdom. Number three, a statue proves that Nebuchadnezzar is worthy of blessing. I worship this God. I built the best statue ever to this God. Right? I am more worthy of this God's favor and expect to be blessed in a particular way. Okay? 
That's how it might work for a king in the ancient world. Now, you and I are making images and idols all the time, right? We're often, and often over, well, an often quoted passage is Calvin in the Institute saying our hearts are idol factories, right? We're always making statues or their equivalent that we would choose to worship. Now, I'm going to start with you, boys and girls, because it's easier to understand this and scale up to adults than it is to do something with adults and scale down. So I want you to imagine, boys and girls, that you have a friend named Betty Sue Joe. And Betty Sue Joe is a big American Girl doll fan. In fact, she just got her ninth American Girl doll. She loves American Girl dolls. She has all the accessories. She goes routinely to the store, to all the makeovers. It's, uh, she knows all the stories of every girl ever made. She knows her American Girl doll business. And she is friends with you. And Betty Sue Joe comes to you and she says... Uh, she wants you to participate in the American Girl doll system. And she advocates, you need an American Girl doll. These are the best dolls ever. You should come and participate in everything that I'm doing. Okay. Well, you think about that. And uh, you're weighing whether or not to participate with the American Girl doll movement. And um, as you're thinking about that, right, just think for a minute what is happening for Betty Sue Joe. Betty Sue Joe has oriented her life around American Girl dolls. She loves them. She, they bring her pleasure. They bring her joy. They, she gets to pretend anything she wants when she's playing with the American Girl dolls and gets to distance herself from the stress that's happening in school or from her homework. They're beautiful. She loves the stories. She aspires to live out their stories as she grows up. That's her, her world, so to speak. And if she invites other people to join her in that world, what does it do? Number one, it increases her power. Why? Because she's a priestess in the American Girl Doll system. She knows everything going on, right? And if you come and want to participate, she becomes an expert that you have to refer to, that you appeal to to understand better the American Girl Doll system. Now you see what's happening, right? She is worshiping something, and she wants you to worship it because one of the side effects is that you will increase her power. Number two, you will reaffirm her commitment. There are some days where Betty Sue Joe thinks, you know, maybe I've invested a little bit too much time and energy and money in American Girl dolls. Maybe I should do something else. And so she starts to question uh, what she loves and what she's invested in. But as she brings more people in and more people then voice the same affection for American Girl dolls, she says, oh, I've made the right decision. I've invested in the right place. The third thing it does, right, is it proves that she is worthy of blessing. I've invested so much in this, in the American Girl Doll System, I deserve to receive more dolls. I deserve to go to the store more often. I deserve to have my heart filled up and to feel uh, warm affection as I play with the dolls. This is what I expect as I engage them. This is simply an exact, you know, by exaggerating something, we can see the idolatry that's in all of our hearts. Now, Boys, if you feel left out in that a little bit, you can easily substitute American Girl doll with Nintendo Switch. And boys and girls, hopefully your parents and adults gathered here today right, already understand that this is their story. Right? If you just replace American Girl doll with a house or a career or the legacy of your children or with um, 
success or belonging to a certain social group, right? You go to this place, you erect a statue, and what do you, you worship, and you want to invite other people into worshiping that thing, and it increases your power, right? It reaffirms the commitment that you've made to that thing, and um, it also makes you uh, expect or it encourages the notion that you're then worthy of blessing, this, if this still feels foreign to you, right, I'm, I'm trying to make it very real to you. And if you want to see a play out, you can come down to my neighborhood. Uh, my neighborhood is, um, so all the monuments to neighborhood, you know, monuments, like when you go into a neighborhood, you've got the monuments on the outside of the neighborhood. Well, down by where I live, and you, they're all getting bigger and bigger, like really silly big. And so our HOA thinks, well, our monuments are really small now. And we need to redo our monuments so that we keep up because our neighborhood is looking a little less than. So I think that's a silly way to spend money. But my voice isn't appreciated very much. Why? Because right, this isn't true of everybody in the neighborhood, but it's true of some of the people in the neighborhood that they, their temple, right, what they worship, their idol is their house. It is being in this community, this neighborhood, and they want to say, we need to... to uh, maintain a certain image to this neighborhood and to our house, right? It communicates something, and we're not willing to negotiate on that. If we don't do it, right, we're talking about increasing our power, and we're talking about reaffirming our commitment to what we've invested in. We're talking about um, being sure of that, and we're talking about, you know, making sure that we're worthy of blessing, right? Maintaining property values and so on and so forth. Now, if in that context I speak of it, you know, I, don't, I think we could think of better ways to spend that money. The HOA dues. Right? Now, some people agree, and they're not really interested in building a castle at the front of the neighborhood just to boast the neighborhood. Right? But there are other people who would have unkind words. Why? Because to, to, beg the, or to raise the question is to threaten right, their idolatry. It's to say, I don't think what you've based your life on is actually going to give you life. Now, somebody may not put it in that words, but you actually pose that to someone, that is extremely threatening. It's, it makes complete sense that they would have threatening words for you because you are threatening the entire system on which they've organized their life. If you were a girl and you went to your friend, Betty Sue Joe, and said, Betty Sue Joe, you know, I think American Girl dolls are great, but, you know, I don't think a doll is worth that much money. Instead, I'm going to buy this cheaper doll, and with my parents' permission, I'm going to buy the same doll for some girls in India. You know, I, of all things that I don't know much in this world, but I'll tell you what Betty Sue Joe's going to do. She's going to unfriend you in a heartbeat. Why? Because you just brought her entire system into question. The thing that she thinks will give her life, you say, I don't need that, which makes her panic. Right? Now suddenly, I don't know that it is going to give me life. And you seem to be making decisions of something. I don't even know what the right word is, but the Bible will call it righteousness. Right? There's a great passage in Hebrews 11 when it's going through the heroes of faith and it comes to Noah, and it's uh, testifying to Noah's obedience in the midst of chaos and uncertainty. But it says the world was what, condemned or convicted as a result of Noah's righteousness. Right? Anytime we obey right, and therefore follow Jesus rather than the other systems in the world, right? we convict the world because they see righteousness, and righteousness always convicts sin. 
And that's why people will always get angry when their idolatry is threatened. And of course, this is what happens. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're Babylonian names in captivity of three Israelites who are friends with Daniel. We don't know why Daniel isn't here. He's missing in action. Perhaps he's been sent on some kind of political uh, venture. Because at the beginning of Daniel, they're very tight. But we come to this place and we have these three men who uh, refuse to participate in what Nebuchadnezzar has set up. If you look at verses 16 through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, uh, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Pretty profound statement, because you notice that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying, listen, we can't participate in this idolatry because we worship the true God. Now, we don't have any question that he's able to save us from this situation, but we don't know if he's going to. But either way, we're going to obey and we're not going to participate in your system, whatever that means for us, which is really uncomfortable as you start to think about it because it means that God doesn't necessarily guarantee you safety. He simply calls for your obedience. And these guys don't know which way it's going to go. They're certainly hoping that God's going to show up in a profound way, but that's not the question for them. The question isn't the outcome, which we're obsessed with, guaranteeing the right outcome. The question is, what does it simply mean to be faithful in the midst of this present circumstance. And so they say they will not participate. Now, what have they just done to Nebuchadnezzar's idolatry? They've thrown the whole thing into question. We're not impressed by your big statue. We're not interested in reaffirming, Nebuchadnezzar, your commitment to that. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar, you shouldn't be confident that you're going to get any blessings because we think you're worshiping a false god. Okay? What's Nebuchadnezzar going to do? Look at the anger in verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, just to demonstrate his rage and have the men consumed, right? That they would be thrown into the furnace and burned up. Now, it's interesting to think, just for a moment, if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had participated with Nebuchadnezzar, they'd be safe, right? Can you imagine, right, put put yourself in their shoes just for a moment. How quickly would we go down the path of saying, well, you know, just because I take the knee here doesn't mean that I'm really worshiping this God. Or I can take the knee and I can pray to Yahweh and pretend I really don't want to be thrown into a furnace. Perhaps there are some various options here to take. But again, the men are not interested in their safety, but in a demonstration of faith. A faith that prioritizes their relationship with God over the circumstances they may suffer. A willingness to align their priorities with God's priorities, regardless of what may come upon them. And isn't that the funny thing about idolatry? Idolatry promises you that everything will be okay and right with the world for five minutes. And then it vaporizes. And yet for that five minutes, we would throw God under the bus every day of the week and twice on Sunday. 
there's uh, one, one way I see myself um, <laughs> not exhibiting particular, you know, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So uh, where I lack self-control sometimes or a lot of time is uh, when I get stressed, I just, there's something in my body that loves sugar. And uh, I, can, I can put down some ice cream like in, in nobody's business. But any kind of sweet will do. And so I'm somewhat of a connoisseur of sweets. And if you're ever in Waco, there's a donut chain there called Shipley's. It's okay, some of you, some of you share my poison. Right, so Shipley's, now what you have to do if you go to Shipley's, any of the donuts is good, but if you're just average. But if you really want to step into my temple and worship what I worship, right? So you go to Shipley's, you stand at the back and you wait. You wait until the fritter tray is empty, and they bring out the new tray of hot fritters, right? Apple fritters. They are like there's apple fritters, and then there's Shipley's apple fritters. Now, it, it's amazing, right? It is just like it, it is the highest art form of food uh, known to man, right? And so, but it's they're huge, and they're probably I don't know, I'm guess probably 1,800 calories or something like that, right? So you eat it, and it's so good. And it's delicious, and everything fades into the background, and you're like in this, um, I don't know, glucose-induced bliss, right? And then five minutes go by, and you're like, oh, I feel terrible. Why did I eat that, right? That's idolatry, right? This is going to promise me a respite for five minutes, and I go and partake, and then afterwards I think, what did I do that for? It hasn't actually given me life. It hasn't encouraged me. It doesn't walk with me. And it certainly does not accompany me into the furnace, which is what the true God offers. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, having angered God in a, or, uh, sorry, having angered Nebuchadnezzar in a very significant way, are thrown into the fiery furnace, probably the very furnace that was used to prepare uh, the statue, and should be consumed immediately uh, by the flames. But in verse 25, you get this odd appearance. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is looking into the flames. Or if you back up halfway into 24, Nebuchadnezzar says, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. <laughs> Sometimes, anyway, never mind. 25, he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And here we have something, now you could say uh, that is just an angel. Part of the trick here is that in Hebrew, the word for um, angel or a god is the same word. El goes either way, right? And so you never, you always have to make a decision interpretively. Are people talking about some kind of angelic presence or something, uh, the presence of one of the gods as they perceive it? Nebuchadnezzar seems to be using language that this is a person particularly out of the ordinary, right? He demonstrates a glory within the fire that communicates to Nebuchadnezzar divinity. And uh, as that person has gone into the flames, into the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and has, as a result of that, preserved their lives. It's a God who walks into the fires of the furnace in order to rescue his people. And it's a beautiful picture of some of the places in the Old Testament that talk about this, but at the same time look forward to a future day and when it's fulfilled in a more stark reality. You could look at places like Isaiah 43, 1 and 2. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. 
and saying, you're my possession. You're my people that I've adopted. And yes, in life, you will go through the waters and the rivers and the fires, but in the midst of that, I will be with you. Or Psalm 23, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this, of course, is what idolatry fails to do because it's false. Even though we pursue it for all the reasons we've talked about, it never actually will walk through the fire with you and bring you out to the other side as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are brought out of the fire. And therefore, idolatry will never offer you vindication. That's where the entire story of, of the Christian scriptures promise you vindication because Jesus has been vindicated and you are united with him. So now some of you are in the furnace. You think, the flames have never been hotter in my life, and I'm pretty weary. And some of you think, Jesus doesn't seem that present in the midst of this fire. It would be really nice if I looked over and saw the fourth man standing right next to me. And yet this is simply a foreshadow, right, of, of Jesus walking into fire as nothing compared to him walking into the stream of God's wrath that you might be redeemed. Right? Walking into the assault of death so that you might receive life. This is the God who will vindicate you in the midst of your sufferings. And if you look at that power unfolding, notice um, verses 28 through 30. After all this has gone down, what is Nebuchadnezzar's reaction? Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own God. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. What a profound statement. Now Nebuchadnezzar doesn't come to faith, right? but what? He's so impressed by the faith exhibited by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the power of their God in vindicating them in the midst of that situation that he declares that, hey, uh, the Jews and Yahweh are off limits. They not only are allowed to worship that God and do not have to bow to my statue, but you will respect them in that action. And if you step against them, I'm going to basically rub you out of existence. This is threat against anyone who would come against them. Now, what a profound and beautiful act, but that act never would have happened. Nebuchadnezzar never would have been impressed by a claim of faith in Yahweh had not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked in faith. Decided that even in the midst of this terrible situation, even in the midst of death, looming at their doorstep, they decided, we entrust ourselves to God. Right? They didn't get to see the man in the furnace prior to being thrown in. Right? They're thrown in after their act of faith, and God shows up. And as a result of that, it's a testimony. Right? It's, um, Nebuchadnezzar and the world has to marvel and say, okay, these people believe something that shapes their lives in a way that is remarkable. And I think if there's any way that the, the church has failed and I have failed, right? it's in this, that we, we give lots of lip service to following Jesus. But when uh, the rubber meets the road, we would so often turn to something else, to some form of idolatry, to something that we think grants us peace and pleasure for five minutes, rather than deciding to walk in obedience and be uncomfortable and not be guaranteed safety and believe that Jesus is going to show up in the midst of the flames. And yet, it's when that occurs 
right? That we actually testify to the world that we belong to him. There, I was reading a, a crazy article this week. There are two, two huge names in physics in the 20th century, and you know one, and you may or may not know the other. One, of course, is Einstein, and the other is uh, John Archibald Wheeler. And Wheeler, in some ways, was almost as big a, a player as Einstein. Einstein, of course, in, in 1905, comes up with the special theory of relativity. Now, Wheeler, when you think of a um, black hole or a wormhole, um, and you also the atomic bomb and the hydrogen bomb, Right. Wheeler was instrumental in the latter two, and he coined the phrases for the former two. Huge figure. Now, amongst physicists in the 20th century, these two physicists agreed on one thing, that time had to be in some way an illusion. Right? Einstein puts forth early in the 20th century that the faster you're moving, the slower time goes. Right? That time is affected by various forces in the universe, and therefore it is, uh, it's relative. It's not constant. It's changing. Now, I don't pretend to get this, but um, if, you've, uh, if you've watched Interstellar, right, Wheeler's physics were very informative. On the f they hired several physicists to actually inform the filming of Interstellar, and you have the place where they go down to this planet with immense gravity, and then they come back up, and the guy in the ship who's outside the gravitational field has aged like 28 years, and the people have been on the planet for like 27 minutes. Right? Time bends at speeds and changes speeds. And so... Uh, they agreed on this, and uh, Wheeler spent really the, after World War II, he spent most of the last half of his life trying to figure out notions of time and gravity. It, he said it ate at him, it's all he could think about. He worked on it for his entire life. And he did, um, they did one experiment that still, is, it shows the mystery and the puzzling aspect of quantum mechanics, and shows you how little we know about this universe, and don't, we don't, won't understand, nobody understands why this is, so don't, don't, don't think you have to understand it to get what I'm saying. But he came up with an experiment to try to demonstrate the oddities of, of quantum mechanics. And he took a laser, right? This is pretty cool. And he shot photons. And he had a, a barrier, right, that the photons couldn't pass through, except it had two slits in it, slit A and slit B. And then he had a photographic plate on the other side. Right? So you think laser, shooting photons, you can go through slit A or slit B, and then you've got a photographic plate. So what should happen is you should have a blob of dots of photons on the photographic plate that shows slot A, or you should, and you should have a blob of dots right, that for the photons that chose uh, slot B. It should be a 50-50 option between choosing the two slots. So he does, it, uh, does the experiment, and what's odd is he gets a line pattern on the photographic plate, which doesn't make any sense because the photons should have to be going through slot A or slot B and simply making a blob of dots in both those places, but instead he's got these lines. So the only way that could be happening is that the photon wavelength actually separates and goes through slot A and slot B simultaneously. Comes back together on the other side, but it's slightly out of sync. And as a result, makes a light pattern on the photographic plate. Okay? All well and good, right? Slot A, slot B, the wavelength splits, goes through both, creates a line pattern. So he says, this is pretty fascinating. I wonder if we can observe the photons as they pass through the slits. So they put some sensors on the slits and uh, observe. And now this time, when they're trying to watch how the photons break apart and go through A and B at the same time, what does he get? He gets two blobs of dots 
In other words, this time when he's trying to observe the phenomenon, the photons actually choose slot A or slot B and make a blob of dots on the photographic plate as he imagined would happen in the first place. And so he said, I, this is bizarre, but it, almost, it seems, right, if we, knew, if we knew this wasn't terribly irrational, it seems that the photons know that we're watching them, right? Because when we're not observing them, trying to see them split, they split and go through both. And when we are watching them, they actually, uh, they actually choose slot A or slot B. Um, and this is, is repeated over and over again. No idea why this is happening, but this was the, the conclusion uh, was this, of physics. By choosing which property of a system to measure, we determine the state of the system. If we don't ask which path the photon taken, uh, takes, it takes both. Our asking creates the path. In other words, it's one of these mysteries of quantum mechanics. It seems like for the thing you want to, uh, depending on what you want to observe, that affects the answer that you receive. And if we pretend, you know, imagine just for a moment that, let's imagine time is somewhat flexible or relative. Both Einstein and Wheeler would say the problem is um, that we're stuck in a, a fishbowl which is called the universe. And if we could step outside the fishbowl, we would know immediately and understand why time is relative. Well, let's presume that God existing outside of time, space and time, is outside the fishbowl. And therefore is working at all moments at the same time and time has no, no meaning for him, which means that um, his power, his grace, his intentionality, his sovereignty, is, this is what we mean by sovereignty, his providence is always at work. Now you can go through life looking for that and observing it, or you can go through life looking for idols that meet you in a particular moment, but one of the results of which will be that they blind you Right, to actually seeing God at work. Now, right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have very easily said, yeah, that fiery furnace looks pretty hot. I think today I'm going to take the knee and I'll work this out theologically. Right? Or I'm even going to buy Nebuchadnezzar a gift basket because I didn't know he was serious about the furnace and I want to make sure to avoid that. Right? And suddenly deciding I'm going to I don't care what Yahweh says or what Yahweh thinks. I'm just going to do what preserves my skin in this moment in time and gets me what I want. And as a result, right, we'll never see the phenomenon of God's grace working in the midst of this world. But by being obedient in faith, right, by looking for the phenomenon, they actually see it at play. God would love to meet you in the midst of the furnace, right, to encourage you to move closer to him, Right, but if you take that fork in the road that always leads to idolatry, right, then he's going to wait. He's going to wait for you to really desire him and to seek to love him so that he can meet you there. So be encouraged right, to move in that direction, right, to practice real faith and obedience that we would see the phenomenon of God's grace working in the midst of this world, uh, just as it did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as we come to the table this morning. Let's pray.